Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Human Species. This book takes an anthropological approach as it explores the animal kingdom and the human species. It was written by Armand de Cartafage and published in 1879. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. To all Spotify listeners who took the time to respond to the Q&A, thank you very much for letting me know what your thoughts were of the episode that you listened to. As always, thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors and everyone who took time to send a message or leave a review during the week. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone who needs the support and it's because of listeners who support via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you do find the podcast beneficial, a great way to help is to share the podcast with a friend or leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Whether it's $1 or $5, Your contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like, you're always welcome to say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Tonight's reading comes from The Human Species by Armand de Cotefage, Professor of Anthropology in the Museum of Natural History, Paris. Chapter 1. Empires and Kingdoms of Nature, the Human Kingdom, Anthropological Method. The naturalist who meets with an object for the first time instinctively asks the question, what is this object? This question leads to another, with what other objects shall I class it? To what group and in the first place to what kingdom does it belong? Is it a mineral, a plant or an animal? The answer is not always easy. We know that, in what may be called the basis of each kingdom, there are ambiguous forms 
whose nature has long been and still is, the subject of contention among naturalists. We know that polyps were long regarded as plants, and that nullipores at first taken for polyps are now divided between the vegetable and mineral kingdoms. And finally, we know that even now, botanists and zoologists dispute over certain diatoms and transfer them from one kingdom to another. Similarly, the question has been asked, what is man? And it has been answered from several points of view. To the naturalist, it has but one meaning, and signifies in which kingdom must man be placed, or better, is man an animal? In spite of all the differences which a comparison of man and the mammalia presents, should he be classed with them? This question is similar to that which Personnel is said to have asked himself when struck by the special phenomena presented by the coral. He asked himself whether the object before him was a vegetable. It is evident that, in order to solve the first problem which arises from a study of the natural history of man, we must have a clear idea what are these great groups of beings, which are called kingdoms. We must give an account of the characters which distinguish and separate them from each other, and then of their true scientific meaning. It will be sufficient for the purpose to explain the well-known laws of Linnaeus, supplementing the theory of the immortal Swede by some ideas borrowed from Pallas and de Condole, and by one of the fundamental conceptions which Addison and A.L. de Jussieu have almost equally contributed to introduce into science. It is impossible for anyone, whether learned or otherwise, not to recognize at once the difference between two kinds of objects, very distinct from each other, inanimate bodies and organized beings. These are the two groups into which Pallas has divided kingdoms under the name of empires. Their distinction is generally easy, and I shall confine myself to recalling some of the most essential differences. Inanimate bodies, when placed under favourable circumstances, last for an indefinite time, neither taking nor giving anything to the surrounding world. Organised beings, under whatever conditions they are placed, only last for a fixed period of time, and during this existence undergo every moment losses of substance, which they repair by means of materials taken from without. Inanimate bodies, even when they assume the fixed and definite form of crystals, 
are formed independently of all other bodies. They have from them their commencement fixed forms and increase simply by superstition of new layers. Every organized being is connected either directly or indirectly with a similar being, in the interior of which it first appeared in the form of a germ, then grew and acquired its definite form by intersusception. In other words, filiation, nutrition, birth and death are so many characteristics of the organized being, of which no trace is found in inanimate bodies. I agree with Pallas in making inanimate bodies compose the inorganic empire, and organized beings the organic empire. I must here make an observation, the importance of which will be easily understood. The existence of the two groups, which have been recognized by the good sense of the general public, as well as by the science of Pallas, is a fact absolutely independent of all hypothesis. Whatever explanation we may propose to account for the differential phenomena which distinguish them, these phenomena will not the less exist. The inanimate body will never be an organized being. To attempt, under any pretext whatever, to reconcile or confound these two kinds of objects with each other is to go in direct opposition to all the progress made for more than a century and especially during the last few years, in physics, chemistry, and physiology. It is inexplicable to me that some men whose merits I otherwise acknowledge should have recently again compared crystals to the simplest living forms, to the sarcotic organisms as they were called by Dujardin, who discovered them and was first to give a comprehensive theory of them from minute observations. A change of name is useless. The things remain the same. The protoplasm has the same properties as sarcode. The animals whose entire substance they seem to form have not altered their nature whether Monera or Amoeba, these forms are the antipodes of the crystal from every viewpoint. A crystal, as M. Norden has well remarked, closely resembles one of those regular piles of shot which may be seen in every arsenal. It only increases from the exterior as the pile is increased when the soldier adds a fresh layer of shot. Its molecules are just as immovable as the balls of iron. It is exactly the contrary with the organized being, and the simpler its composition, the greater the contrast. 
the small size of the monoran and the amoeba prevents. It is true. Certain observations. I appeal, however, to all those naturalists who have studied certain marine sponges in a living state. They must, like myself, have remarked the strange activity of the vital whirlpool in the semi-sarcodic substance which surrounds their silicious or horny skeleton. They will have seen the seawater in which they are placed move with a rapidity which it never exhibits when in contact with any other animal. The reason is that, in the organized being, the repose of the crystal is replaced by an incessant movement, that instead of remaining immovable and unalterable, the molecules are unceasingly undergoing transformation, changing their composition, producing fresh substances, retaining some and rejecting others. Far from resembling a pile of shot, the organized being may much rather be compared to the combination of a number of physiochemical apparatus, constantly in action to burn or reduce materials, borrowed from without, and ever making use of their own substance for its incessant renewal. In other words, in the crystal once formed the forces remain in a state of stable equilibrium, which is only interrupted by the influence of exterior causes. Hence the possibility of its indefinite continuance without any change either of its form or of its properties. In the organized being, the equilibrium is unstable, or rather there is no equilibrium properly so-called. Every moment, the organized being expends as much force as matter, and owes its continuance solely to the balance of the gain and loss. Hence the possibility of a modification of its properties and form without its ceasing to exist. Such are the bare facts which rest upon no hypothesis whatever. And how can we in the presence of these facts compare the crystal which grows in a saline solution to the germ which becomes in succession embryo, fetus and finally a complete animal? How can we confuse the inanimate body with the organized being? The two groups are easily separated by the phenomena they exhibit. It is the same with the causes of the phenomenon. Naturalists and physiologists are here divided. Some would have it that the cause or the causes are identical and that conditions which are almost accidental alone determine the difference in the results by changing their mode of action. In their opinion, the formation of a crystal or of a monoran is only a question of resultant. 
Others consider living beings as the result of a cause entirely different from those which act in the inanimate bodies and refer this cause alone, everything which takes place in these beings. These two methods appear to me, from the exclusive element in each, to be equally ill-founded. It cannot be denied that phenomena identical with those characteristic of inanimate bodies are found in organized beings, and we have, therefore, no scientific reason to attribute them to different causes. But organized beings have also their special phenomena radically distinct from, or even opposed to, the former. Is it possible to refer all of them to one, or to several identical causes? I think not. For this reason, I admit with a great number of eminent men of every age and country, and I believe with the majority of those that respect modern science, that organized beings owe their distinctive characteristics to a special cause, to a special force, to life, which in them is associated with the inorganic forces. For this reason, I consider it legitimate to call the living beings. I shall often, however, return to this class of its considerations, in order to make it quite clear in what sense I take these words, force and life. The two empires of Pallas are themselves subdivided into kingdoms, which are characterized by special facts and phenomena, becoming more and more complicated as we ascend the scale of nature. To anyone who considers, as far as we are able, the little that we know of the universe, the celestial bodies, suns, planets and comets, or satellites only appear as molecules of the great all, which fills indefinite space, one general phenomenon which is unchangeable, however varied in its forms, is, as it were, the attribute of these bodies, all whether gaseous or solid, obscure or luminous, hot or cold, move within curves of the same nature, obeying the laws discovered by Kepler. It is now well known that fixed stars do not exist. In order to explain this phenomenon, philosophers have admitted the existence of a force which they have called gravitation, the effect of which is to precipitate the stars towards one another, as if they mutually attracted each other, whilst obeying the laws of Newton. Now it is well known that the great Englishman himself gave no opinion upon the mode of action of this force, and that he hesitated between the hypothesis of attraction and that of impulsion. The first should prevail, 
as being more in accordance with the immediate results of observation. But the second also has had serious partisans, among whom I will only mention me de Tisson. Thus Newton, in spite of all his genius, cannot tell us what was the cause of the movement of the stars. He was not even able to determine the immediate mode of action of this cause, and yet there is not a scientific term more universally received than that of gravitation. There is not a case in which the expression force is more generally accepted. The reason of this, that in the presence of general facts and groups of phenomena, it is necessary to make use of terms as simple as possible. We must, however, avoid the delusion of thinking that naming is equivalent to explaining. In cases analogous to that of which we have been treating, the word force merely indicates the presence of an unknown cause, which give rise to a group of fixed phenomena. In assigning names to each of the forces or unknown causes to which we consider ourselves able to refer certain groups of phenomena, we facilitate the demonstration and discussion of the facts. The scientific man knows very well that he cannot go beyond this. It is in this sense and in this sense alone that I have used above the expressions force and life. Astronomers consider gravitation the unknown cause of the movement of the stars. I consider life as the unknown cause of the phenomena which are characteristic of organized beings. It may be that both gravitation and life, as well as the other general forces, are merely as X, of which the equation has not yet been discovered. I shall presently return to these considerations. Be this as it may, whatever our real ignorance whatever the cause of which we are here treating, and though impulsion should one day replace attraction in our theories, the facts would still remain the same. The stars would still be distributed through space, and subject to the laws of Newton and Kepler, they would still constitute a perfectly distinct whole. In the part assigned to the bodies which compose it, and in the nature of the relations which unite them, they would still form the sidereal kingdom. This kingdom is then characterized by a general phenomenon, the Keplerian movement, which may be attributed to a single force, namely that of gravitation. Let us now return to the Earth, the only celestial body which we can study in detail. Modern discoveries, however, judging from the relation of the elements and their mutual action, 
make it almost certain that the greatest similarity exists between the stars distributed in space, between all those at least which forms part of the heavens. Let us first establish the fact that upon our globe we again meet with the Caplarian movement in falling bodies. Attraction is here represented by weight. Gravitation reappears with all its laws, acting upon grains of dust as it acts upon worlds. The parts of the whole of cosmos as Humboldt would have said, cannot escape from the force which governs the whole. But upon the surface of our earth, and in its interior, as far as we have been able to penetrate either by direct observation or scientific induction, we notice the appearance of other movements which are not subject to the laws of Kepler or Newton. Phenomena appear which are entirely new and perfectly distinct from those due to gravitation. They are the physico-chemical phenomena. From their number and their difference in character, they were long attributed to the action of distinct forces, which were called electricity, heat, magnetism, etc. Modern science, however, by transforming, so to speak, one into the other, has demonstrated their original unity. Physicists refer them all to nothing more than so many manifestations of the undulations of ether. The vibration of the latter is then the fundamental phenomenon from which all the others rise. But this ether is absolutely hypothetical. Its nature is perfectly unknown, no one knowing whence it acquires the quantity of movement, which, according to the actual theory, should be subject neither to increase nor diminution. Now, in reality, we have here the unknown cause of the all-physico-chemical phenomena. For this reason, and also for convenience, we shall give a name to this unknown cause, to this force, and call it etherodynamy. But it is not etherodynamy, only a particular form, a simple modification or an effect of gravitation, are not these two forces only different manifestations of a more general force? Many eminent men are much inclined to admit one or other of these hypotheses. Still, up to the present time, the facts do not seem to me to shew much agreement with them Aetherodynamy is displayed even in space and among the stars by variable, localised and temporary phenomena. The action of gravitation is one, universal and constant. Man has always been able to exercise a certain amount of control 
over the former. He can produce at will light and heat. Modern science cannot act upon the second. We can neither augment nor diminish, reflect or refract, or polarize weight. We cannot arrest its action. Even in the fall of bodies, the regularity in the acceleration of the motion proves that the cause of this movement is subject to no alteration. Here then is no transmutation of force similar to that in a machine worked by electricity or heat. But whatever be the progress of science, and though M. de Tussin's theory should be confirmed by experiment, the difference between the phenomena would not be diminished. The conclusions to be drawn from the facts in connection with the question we are here discussing would remain the same. It is scarcely necessary to remark that the physico-chemical phenomena produced by etherodynamy can act upon masses or be exclusively molecular. They are in all cases similar to those which depend upon gravitation. They are subject to invariable laws and are always repeated in a similar manner when produced under similar circumstances. No antagonism, it is true, exists between gravitation and etherodynamy. It is no less true that the action of the first is always disturbed in a peculiar manner by that of the second, and that in some phenomena it seems as if the latter would neutralize the former. This fact is most strikingly shown in some of the commonest experiments in physics. The gold leaves of the electroscope separate. The pith balls are attracted towards electrified bodies in spite of their weight and are repelled with a rapidity greater than that which would result merely from their own weight. And yet these bodies have no more ceased to possess weight than those masses of iron raised by the powerful magnets of M. Jarman etherodynamy. In these two cases merely overcame gravitation and either modified or imitated its action. Those terrestrial bodies which present no other phenomena than those which can be referred to either gravitation or etherodynamy have, since the time of Linnaeus, been termed inanimate bodies. Together they constitute the mineral kingdom. We see that the existence and the distinction of this group are perfectly independent of any hypothesis intended to explain the phenomena. Two kinds of phenomena then are characteristic of the mineral kingdom, phenomena of the Keplerian movement and physico-chemical phenomena, which may be attributed to the action of two forces, gravitation and aetherodynamy. 
the sidereal and mineral kingdoms form the inorganic empire. Passing from it, we enter the domain of organized and living beings. We have already seen the essential phenomena by which they are distinguished. These phenomena differ essentially from all those which we have observed in inanimate bodies. It seems to me, therefore, necessary to attribute them to a special cause, to life. I know that in the present day, anyone making use of this word is readily accused by a great number of physicists and chemists, and by an entire physiological school, of introducing into science a vague and almost mysterious expression. There is, however, nothing in it more vague or mysterious than in the word gravitation. It is very true that we do not know what life is, but no more do we know what the force is that set the stars in motion and retains them in their orbits. If astronomers have been right in giving to the force or unknown cause, which gives the world their mathematical movements, naturalists have a perfect right to designate by a special term that unknown cause which produces filiation, birth and death. It will be apparent that my idea of life is not the same as it was with many ancient vitalists, that it is no more the arch of Van Helmont than the vital principle of Barthes. Its function appears to me something very different to that attributed to by most of our predecessors, and which is still attributed to by some physiologists. Far from merely animating the organs, it is closely associated with the forces of which we have already spoken. Living beings are heavy, and therefore subject to gravitation. They are the seat of numerous and various physico-chemical phenomena, which are indispensable to their existence and which must be referred to the action of etherodynamy. But these phenomena are here manifested under the influence of another force. It is for this reason that the results of these phenomena are often quite different to those in inanimate bodies, and that living beings have their special products. Life is not antagonistic to the inanimate forces, but it governs and rules their actions by its laws. Therefore, it makes them produce tissues, organs and individuals instead of crystals. It organizes germs and maintains through space and time, in spite of most complex metamorphoses, that unity of definite living forms, which we call species. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story. And I also hope that you're feeling a little tired. If you're not quite tired yet, 
please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, and good night.